Good morning, church. My name is Henk from the President Park Life Group. Please join me as I read for us from the Word. It's Micah, chapter 7, from verse 8 to 20. And you can follow it on the screen behind me as well. Micah 7, from verse 8 to 20. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment on me, judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for building of your walls. In that day the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruits of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. I just want to join Pum in, in thanking God for the fellowship of Christians. If you just think about who has been on the stage this morning, we had Tandi sharing so very bravely out of her own enormously personal experience. We had our teen band, did you notice them? Weren't they brilliant? Yeah, there we go. Let's give them a round of applause. They're wonderful. Um, yeah, we, we thank God for, uh, for the richness and diversity of his people, blessing young people with gifts like that. The President Park Life Group are serving us in various ways. And it's a fellowship that isn't a social club. It's a fellowship formed by and around the Word of God. So we can really thank him for that as we come to his Word. Won't you pray with me? Father God Almighty, we do praise you and thank you that you form a people for yourself and you form us uh, merely by speaking a word and the word you have spoken fully and finally is your son and we praise you for him for um, 
He is the fullest disclosure of who you are. Uh, The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word took on flesh. We praise you for him. Father, we pray that you would speak now. That you would speak to us. That you would break us and remake us. That you would um, empty us of our idle notions and fill us up with your Spirit. Uh, Help us to see you. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Make us into the likeness of Christ, we pray. Do not leave us as we entered here this morning. Uh, Fill us up, Lord, and send us out full of zeal, full of passion for, uh, for the Father, through the Son, and in the power of the Spirit. We pray this in his name. Amen. We only have one question we want to answer today, just one. The question comes to us in the very first book, or, uh, very first verse of the book. It comes in the name of our prophet. So chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Micah. Micah means, who is like the Lord? And that question comes to us again right at the very end of the book in one of the verses Hank read to us, chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you? So once at the beginning and once at the end, this is a question that frames the whole prophecy. Who is like the Lord? So that's our question. That's the question we want to answer. To answer it, we probably have to answer a prior question. Before we can answer who is like the Lord, we probably have to ask, what is God like? What is the Lord like? And to answer that, John Calvin has some very helpful wisdom for us. He says, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. Every person on coming to the knowledge of himself is not only urged to seek God, but is also led as by the hand to find him. On the other hand, Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God. That's a long, complicated way of saying this. If we want to answer the question, what is God like? A good place to start, strangely enough, is by taking a look at ourselves. Taking a look at humanity. That sounds strange. Bear with me, go with me on the journey. Hopefully by the end of the sermon you'll see what I mean. But for now, let's do that. Let's just take a look at humanity. Let's consider the human condition. The prophet Micah does that for us in the first half of chapter 7. Not the part uh, that Hank read, the part that comes just before it. So chapter 7, Micah chapter 7 and verse 1. You can read there with me. He starts in verse 1. Woe is me. Verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. Hopefully you remember that Micah is a chapter, just one chapter, in the book of the 12 minor prophets. And the main theme of the book as a whole is the death and resurrection of Israel. 
Israel must die so that she can be born again. Like Hosea, Micah is prophesying in the 8th century BC, 800 years before Christ. At that time, the neighborhood bully Assyria is actually taking a nap. And so they left to themselves. And left to themselves, Israel in the north and Judah in the south are booming. They are thriving. They are flourishing. But tragically, economic growth coincides with spiritual decline, as it so often does. Economic prosperity walks together with spiritual decline, as we are so familiar with. And Micah, in the face of all of this, Micah brings God's lawsuit against the people of God. The whole book is an indictment of the people. The people are corrupt because their leaders are corrupt. They steal and bribe and oppress. They exploit those with less power. They are violent and greedy. They worship false gods. They are God's covenant people, but they're in total breach of the covenant. They are God's special people, set aside, set apart to be distinct, but they look like the world around them. They are supposed to represent God to humanity and humanity to God. Remember, that was the mission of Israel. You are to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are to be a priesthood representing God to humanity and humanity to God. That's their mission. But instead they embody the worst of a humanity that is totally alienated from God. It is so bad that judgment must come. Israel must die. So Micah prophesies that Assyria will wake up from her slumber and destroy the northern kingdom. And Babylon will follow soon after, loot the southern kingdom, sack the temple, Shackle the king, lead the people into exile. That's the picture he paints. It's a picture of the human condition and where it leads us into God-forsaken exile, banished from his presence. Look again at chapter 7, just those first few verses. Scan through them. I'm going to paraphrase them for us. There is no one upright amongst mankind. They lie in wait for blood. They hunt each other. They excel In evil, those with power and money abuse it for more power and more money. That was the state of humanity in Micah's day. This is how the Apostle Paul describes the state of humanity, the human condition, a thousand years later. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the human condition in Micah's day and in Paul's day and our day. Any different? If you were to describe the human condition today with words like confusion, deceit, worthlessness, misery, ruin, would those words be out of place? I'm looking at you and it seems you don't think so. 
The human condition has not changed. It is desperate. It is hostile. It is corrupt. It is self-destructive. And please note, this is not just the condition of the ANC or the condition of the Stellenbosch Mafia. This is not just a problem in Santon or in Sebo King. This is not just unique to the members of River Club Golf Course or the residents of Plastic View Informal Settlement. This is the human condition. This is in every single one of us. It's in us. The symptoms are different. The symptoms change, but the underlying disease is the same. Now the question is, going back to our question for this morning, if that's who we are, what does God do with us? How does he relate to this humanity? And not some idealistic vision of humanity, but humanity as it actually is. Humanity as we experience it every single day. How God relates to us in this mess will tell us a lot about what he is like. The prophet gives us some insight. He tells the story through the voice of a single, broken, beaten, banished Israelite. This is a representative Israelite in exile. Let's just listen in. Chapter 7, verse 8. The voice of that lone, broken, beaten, banished Israelite in exile. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. There's hope. Even in the darkness of God-forsaken exile, there's hope. Where does the hope come from? Verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause. And until he executes judgment for me. He will bring me out into the light. I shall look upon his vindication. The hope, the light, comes from the Lord. The Israelite is in exile because of his sin. That exile is darkness and death to him. Sin always ends in death. He's lost the temple. He's lost the land. He's lost his king. He's lost access to his God. In other words, he died because of his sin. In fact, it was the Lord himself who put him to death. But somehow, the Lord will also give him life. This is the strange, mysterious, wondrous truth Verse 9 again, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause, until he executes judgment for me. The Lord is both prosecution and defense. He brings condemnation. He brings vindication. He banishes to darkness. He also restores to light. Now we begin to see why Micah must ask the question, who is like the Lord? It doesn't end there. Not only will the Lord forgive his people, he will also defeat their enemies. Verse 10. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, 
Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Not only does God forgive his people and fight for them, defeat their enemies, he also welcomes them home. Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. This means the exiles are back in the land. In their numbers, the renovations and the expansion of the house have to begin. They are welcomed home. The city is bursting at its seams. They are welcomed home. Verse 12, in that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. God's people will come from Assyria. They will come from Egypt, from the river and the sea. They will come home to the Lord. They will be with him in the land. But they will not be alone. They will not be the only ones who come. Verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. God defeats his enemies. They turn to him in fear. The story doesn't end there. Listen to a fuller account of what, how the Lord relates to his enemies from Micah chapter 4. Turn there. Micah chapter 4. From verse 1. This is how the Lord relates to his enemies. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. We come back to this strange, mysterious, wondrous truth. The Lord defeats his enemies only so that he can bring them in. Only so that he can welcome them. He conquers them only so that he can give them a share in the spoils of peace. Once again, we are left asking, who is like the Lord? The Lord judges and forgives. He fights and welcomes. He curses only so that he can bless. Verse 4, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Peace, prosperity, security. Who is like the Lord? That note of wonder is exactly how the book ends. You would have heard it when Hank read it. Let's read it together again. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? That's our question. It's the prophet's question. 
Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will, in, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast out all, all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the Lord. And by now the answer to our question is obvious. No one is like him. He stands alone. Who is like the Lord? No one is like him. How does he do what he does? How does he judge and forgive? Banish and welcome. How does he put to death and raise to life? The very last words of Micah are a clue. You have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. We find a reference to those days, the days of old, earlier on in chapter 5. So go there, I'll pick it up in chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little among the clans of Judah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. In his steadfast love, God swore to Abraham in days of old that he would do all of this. But the something he promised was a someone, someone who would be born in Bethlehem, a king born in a clan that was too little, too insignificant to be considered to be counted among the clans of Judah. A king in the line of David, the humble shepherd king, with himself very humble beginnings, and yet a great end. Of course, we know this king. We know him. Everything God ever promised Abraham is yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who forgives us, who fights for us, who defeats our enemies for us so that he can welcome us in and bless us. He's the one who comes as the lone Israelite to be broken and beaten and banished to exile. So that we can come home. He sits in the darkness so that we can enjoy the light. He bears the indignation of the Lord because of our sin. God executes judgment on him so that he can plead our cause. I hope you're hearing the language of the prophet. He exchanges our condemnation for his vindication. This is Micah preaching to us. Our enemies rejoice over him instead of us. They scoffed at him, where is your God? So that we never have to face the shame of that question. He was expelled from the city so that our boundary lines can be extended 
and can fall in pleasant places. He was a friend to sinners and a servant to those who despised him. He stoops to conquer. And when he rises in victory, he offers peace to his enemies from every nation. We're coming to the Lord's table a little later. It's his table. And know this, he welcomes the most treacherous of his enemies to his table. He is the reason God pardons our iniquity and passes over our transgression. He drinks the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of Christian fellowship. So that God can look at you with nothing but delight and steadfast love. He is the Father's justice and the Father's compassion to us at the same time on the same cross. He is trampled underfoot for our iniquity. He is cast into the depth of the sea with the weight of our sin around his neck. He bears the curse of God so that every blessing God ever promised to Abraham can be ours. My brothers and sisters, do you see why we must ask the question? Why really it's the only question we can ask. Who is like the Lord our God? If that's how he relates to us, if that's how he relates to us as we are, with the human condition as it is, not the ideal version, not the version we're coming to, the condition as it is, if that's how he treats us in all of our muck, and our mess, and our waywardness, and our fickleness, and our unfaithfulness, and our failure, then how do we respond? Once again, the prophet answers our questions. Turn with me to chapter 6, verse 6. His questions are our questions. You'll see that in In chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? How do we respond? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love covenant faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord want from us? Well, one thing's for certain He does not want our religious duty. From Israel, He did not want thousands of rams. Or 10,000 rivers of oil. They were his to begin with. What would they possibly add to him? He didn't want it from Israel. He doesn't want it from you. He doesn't in the first place want your sacrificial service. Your hours and hours devoted to this church. Devoted to helping others. He doesn't. That's not in the first place what he wants. That's not the heart of what he wants. That might be the fruit of what he wants. But it's certainly not the heart of what he wants. 
So if he doesn't want that, what does he want? That you act justly, that you love covenant faithfulness, that you walk humbly with your God. In a culture dominated by self-promotion and idolatry, Micah's culture, our culture, God demands something different. Taking Micah 6 verse 8 in reverse order, God wants us to live a life of faith. That's walking humbly with him. While we love him with our whole heart, that's covenant faithfulness. And love our neighbors as ourselves, that's acting justly. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, including the prophet Micah, hang on these two commandments. That's how we respond. And doesn't it sound so sweet? To act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with our God. I want that. I know you want that. It just sounds like the life we all want to live. It sounds like the abundant life. So let's go and do it. You ready? On the count of three. What's going to happen? We're going to rush through those doors and then what? Then what? Because we knew all of this coming into these doors this morning. We started this past week knowing that we're supposed to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. How did it go? We were half-hearted at best. So what are we going to do now? Because the prophet has just reminded us that God doesn't want our religious duty. So don't go and try harder. He wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. He wants our love. How are we going to give him what he wants? We're back where we started. The answer is in the question. Who is like the Lord our God? The more we ponder that question, the more we meditate on it, the more we wrestle with it in prayer, the more we will be moved to a fruitful response. Our hearts are hard. We don't want to give them, all of them, to the Lord. We always want a little portion on reserve. This corner of our lives. That corner of our hearts. The only thing that is going to soften our hard hearts is the Lord's heart for us. We will only love Him because He loved us first. As the Apostle John puts it, this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when Peter refuses to let Jesus wash his feet, our Lord replies, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And when Martha wants to respond with religious duty, instead of simply basking in the love of her master, Jesus answers Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, and indeed only one. What is the one thing that is needed? Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. What did Mary choose? She chose to sit at the feet of her master and bask in his love. Do you see? 
the more we want to give our hearts to the Lord, and we do. In our better moments, we want to give our hearts to the Lord. The more we want that, the more we have to receive his heart for us. It's the only way. The more we want to love the Lord, the more we need to know and enjoy his love for us. Brothers and sisters, the heart of a response to God is an answer to the question, who is like the Lord our God? If you ask that question and hold it in your mind and in your heart for long enough, you'll end up where the Apostle Paul ended up in his letter to the Romans. After 11 chapters of grappling with exactly that question, who is like the Lord? This is where he lands. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Do you hear it? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The most important word in that entire explosion of praise is the first word. Did you hear it? The very first word. Oh. Oh, the depth of the riches. Oh. It's the heart of wonder. It's the only way to answer the question, who is like the Lord our God? Speechless wonder. It's the heart of any response to him. It's the heart of worship. Let's pray that it would be our response. We're going to take a moment of silence. As the musicians come up, please come up, musicians. We're going to take a moment of silence just to ponder that question. Who is like the Lord your God? So ponder that in your hearts. And then I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray just the last few verses of Micah chapter 7. I just want you to sit and let them wash over you. Drink them into the depths of your soul and know that they are yours in our Lord Jesus Christ. These words are yours in our Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Father, who is like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the sake of his people. You do not retain your anger because you delight in steadfast love. You have compassion on us. You tread our iniquities underfoot. You cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Your faithfulness to Jacob, your steadfast love to Abraham is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ. For him and in him and through him, we praise and worship you. Amen.